0: We now turn to our scripture passage today, which comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12, and we've been going over this series in the Gospel of Mark, and we haven't seen the Pharisees in a while, because one of the things that happens is, as Jesus proclaims himself to be God, Savior of the world, and he does all these miracles, you would think that people would rejoice in that, right? And you would think that people uh, would support this. Not the Pharisees; it's the religious folk that have the hardest time with Jesus. And this, that's the thing about Jesus. It, this, that's the thing about Jesus. That's the thing about his grace: is that it not only uh, it not only offends people who are liberals who live however they want, but it also offends particularly the heavy religious conservatives. And so let's look at how this all plays out today in today's passage, Mark chapter ten, verse one through twelve. And if you're able, can you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? These are God's wholly inspired and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And the house, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May it continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, as we come to your words, we live in this time where we're able to just pick and choose what we want, whether it's our preferences to who we date, to the clothing that we wear, to the homes we buy, to the cars that we have. We're all about preferences, but today we get a straight shot, a little bit of a hard saying, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will give us tremendous and oceans amounts of grace to help us to understand these words. So be with the one that speaks, um, that you would help me, and be with those who hear, that you would work on our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, the older I get, the more I get into romantic comedies. I really love romantic comedies. So I'm really curious, what are your favorites? Uh, Let me hear them right now. What are some of your favorite romantic comedies? You've Got Mail? Oh, that's such a good one. What else is there? Bridget Jones' Diary? I've I've never seen it. I'll take your word for it. Um, you guys have seen When Sally Meets Harry. Harry Meets Sally, sorry. That's one of my favorites. I love uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, um, especially when that last scene where the girl is, like, writing poetry or whatever, seeing her poem. I love 50 First Dates. That's a good one. And then, like, m- perhaps my all-time fr- favorite is Notting Hill. That's such a good one. If you haven't seen, you've got to watch it. There's just something about this genre of romantic comedies, this idea of finding love when you least expect it and when it's most undeserved. And there's something about this that just sucks you in, pulls you in. And the sad thing about today is that they don't really make romantic comedies anymore. No one really does that. Because according to one producer or director, he he said just for two reasons of why this genre has kind of died out. It's, first of all, it doesn't generate enough money. Okay? And then second of all, he says, it's not realistic enough. It's not realistic. Oh, yeah, because, you know, Avengers is very realistic for us. We all have to worry about Thanos and alien spaceships, right? It's unrealistic to us. I don't think it's the genre that's at fault here, but maybe there's something cultural about us that perhaps we've become so disenchanted that anyone could possibly love like this at all. Maybe that's the problem. Because if anything is supposed to express the highest expression of what love should look like, it's the institution that we call marriage. But like everyone else, there's a suspicion to this. Whether you find yourself single, whether you find yourself married, whether you find yourself struggling in your marriage, to really understand God's intention for marriage actually helps you to understand the heart of God itself. And that's why this is so important for us to understand. Because Jesus, or the Bible, uses the analogy and metaphor of marriage to reflect how God relates to his people. So if you can understand his purpose and heart for marriage, you can really understand him. There's three things that Jesus points to about marriage here. One is the provisional aspect. I mean, one is this idea of exceptionality. Secondly, it's creational. There's a creational purpose to it. And last of all, the unconditional nature of it. Let's look at the first part, exceptional. Tell me what all these three characters have in common. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg. What do all three characters have in common? Anyone know? I just hear murmurs, but I'll just say this. They have money, yes, but they're also all college dropouts. All three of them. And they went on to be quite successful in what they've done. And yet here we sit. Many of us, despite knowing, uh, seeing this or witnessing this, we still decided to stay in school. Why is that? Because those guys are the exceptions. We're not going to make a life-altering change in our lives based on exceptions. We live according to the norms. The Pharisees, right, they they bring up this topic of divorce to Jesus, and it's not exactly small talk. It's kind of like coming up cold, uh, uh, cold call, uh, saying like, what's your view on politics? Not exactly like conversation here. So no matter what it is that Jesus says, it's going to be a lose-lose situation no matter what. And so this topic of divorce is brought to Jesus, but he doesn't shy away from it what does Moses command you? Or what did Moses command you? And they responded, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Pay attention to the semantics here. Jesus asked, what did Moses command? How did the Pharisees respond? Moses allowed, meaning permitted. Or for our context here, made exceptions for. Made exceptions for here. Bringing up this certificate of divorce was the Pharisee's way of kind of having this checkmate moment with God or with Jesus. It was a solid argument because how can Jesus argue against the Bible? And so Jesus tells them, verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment to you. You have hardened hearts, that's the context. You have turned the exceptions into the norm. You know, I was at this event, uh, where they were handing out Pliny the Younger, and it's a specialty beer that they only sell once a year. And so a lot of people gather for this event, actually. And as I was standing in line, waiting for my turn, I was, there was an elderly gentleman who, um, looked like, you know, in his, uh, looked like he can have grandchildren. And, uh, as we we're talking, we we're small talking, right? And we're, we're talking about family at this point, and he suddenly just, cracks this joke in small talk, right? And he says, I got divorced a long time ago so I can enjoy events like this. And like, I didn't know what to say, but everyone else was chuckling, politely laughing. And I just thought, that's a strange thing to bring up in small talk. Because how many of us are bringing up in small talk like our colonoscopies or our father wounds and consider that uh, polite etiquette in small talk? None of us. And this is when I realized hardness of heart there that perhaps our culture thinks so lowly about marriage itself. We become so disenchanted. See, the certificate of divorce, it comes during a period where men would casually divorce their wives for any reason at all. Okay, burn toast and the husband wasn't satisfied with it, they they would divorce. True story. And it it was just kind of like You know, like choosing a pair of shoes, and if you get bored of it, you toss those shoes away, you know, just casually get the divorce, find someone else. And the thing about the certificate of divorce was it was actually instituted in order to protect women during that time, because women growing up then had far little agency than they do now. They couldn't provide for themselves. They couldn't protect themselves. So if they have the certificate of divorce, they're able to go to their father's house where they could at least survive and make it, you know? And the thing is, without their certificate of divorce, some of these uh, ex-husbands, they would say, oh, never mind, I changed my mind. Come back to me. And they would uproot the woman's life again. See, the certificate of divorce is about protecting the women's rights back then. And this is why Jesus says what He says, That exception is not the norm. It's because you have a hardness of heart. You're disenchanted about what marriage is supposed to be like. See, the thing about marriage back then is that mainly people married for the sake of business. It was an economic business uh, uh, decision so that they can accumulate lots of land, lots of camels. And, And marriage was purely a transaction in this way. This is why no one batted an eye when divorce happened back then, both in Greco-Roman culture and also in Judaism. And yet, you compare this to now, where most people, they they get married for the sake of finding love, the sake of finding romance, fulfillment. And yet, guess what? I don't think the divorce rates have changed very much back now. There's so much pressure in this idea of finding the soulmate, especially with all these dating apps who, uh, that, um, you know, line up all your algorithm, algorithmic, uh, preferences. So you, you better find the perfect soulmate. And there's so much pressure about that. Not much has changed. There's nothing wrong with finding love. There's nothing wrong with finding romance, but the question has to be asked. What is marriage's main purpose? What's the main purpose? Esther Perel, she's this uh, marriage therapist that I like reading upon. I like her concepts and ideas. And she made this observation about how we view marriage as a culture today, especially in the West. And she put it this way. We come to one person, and we are basically asking them to give us what at once an entire village used to provide. So she says, give me belonging. Give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and all all in one. Give me comfort, uh, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, but give me surprise. Guys, any of you fit this description? Anybody? None of us. And Esther Perel also said that we don't really divorce or have affairs because we're unhappy, but because we could be happier. We could be happier. Hardness of heart right there. We could be happier. Listen, in Esther Perel's description, it's really all of these things are really a desire for God. God. And that perhaps the village that we're all looking for is the one that God gives to us through the means of the church. That perhaps the exceptional soulmate that we long for is really learning how to be faithful with the relationships that already exist. Listen, this is a wide audience of different life stages. And we have to understand certain things together. That being single, yeah, it's hard. But it's just as hard as being married. And being single, it's also a blessing. But it's just as much of a blessing as marriage. What Jesus is getting at here is what he wants us to see is learning how to be faithful with where we're at. No matter what life stage, there's a call for us to be faithful where we are, reflecting the love of Christ to one another in the church. And perhaps if we can see that, maybe we won't be so disenchanted because the purpose of marriage is not based on exceptions, but it's based on what Jesus says about creation, which brings us to our second point here. For every person that thinks that marriage is somehow going to be uh, make me self-fulfilled or happier or fix my loneliness problems, I always think to myself, that's just something that single people say, you know? Married people kind of know. This is where Jesus gets at. He takes us back to the original purpose of marriage and creation. Look what he says in verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh isn't just about physical union. It, It means to completely be naked before one another in mind, in emotions, and soul. And what it, marriage essentially does is it exposes you. Marriage is not something you work on. Rather, marriage forces you to work on yourself. That is the purpose of it. Guys, I got to tell you, like, if you met single Amos, I don't know if you'd want to be my friend back then. Like, it's only through marriage I realized, like, a lot of my anger issues come up. It's only through a marriage, like, I, I used to just eat cereal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because I thought, you know, I could I can get by with this. And um, through marriage to Kathy, I, I learned about vegetables and became more healthy and all that. Single Amos used to think basketball shorts and, and uh, church retreat shirts was a good form of fashion every day. But my style changed too. I, I don't know how I'm alive without being married, honestly. That's the thing about marriage, it's really about meant to actually grow us, grow the individual. That's the whole point of it. Tim Keller, he put it this way, that um, to be loved and to uh, be loved, to be loved and not known is uh, superficial. it's comforting, but it's superficial. But to be known and not loved, that is our greatest fear. To be fully known and fully loved is well, a lot like. Being loved by God. And at, at best, this is what marriage is supposed to reflect. That as we are exposed in all our flaws, in all our deficiencies, we are also being loved to change. That's what it's about. And when marriage serves this purpose, there will be romance, there will be happiness because of it, there will be fulfillment because of the growth that's the whole point here. There's two expressions I want to highlight here that Jesus talks about. This expression of holding fast in verse eight and jo- and, and in verse eight, join together. See, this word for hold fast up here, uh, means sticking to or cleaving to together, right? That's a, that's an intentional act that you do together. And when Jesus says join together, it's actually a, a, um, it actually means being yoked together which is an imagery of two oxen and donkeys carrying a heavy load together. And both these phrases that Jesus uses, they express intentionality and their strenuous efforts. You don't just fall in love. It takes continual effort. Notice you're constantly cleaving together, constantly uh, being yoked together. What I think today that really affects and damages a lot of marriages is this one subtle killer here that no one talks about really. And it's just this, busyness. The busyness kills so much of our marriage. It really does because you start getting so wrapped up with immediate things that you start pushing off the important things. And the more and more you tend to the immediate things, it starts to actually replace the important ones. And slowly and slowly, there's this drift, a loss of connection. And it's just like our spiritual lives. You can only feel connected and close to God by going to church once a month for so long before it finally catches up with you. And that's the thing. Cleaving, joined together, it's a continual effort. It's strenuous. It's meant to be. At 10 p.m. every night, right, Kathy and I, we have this ritual where we stop everything that we're doing, no matter what it is. So at 10 10 p.m. at night, we sit in front of each other. We just make eye contact, and we deliberately stare into each other's eyes, and it's it's kind of awkward at first, but and then we just ask the simple question, how are you doing? What happened today? And we commit ourselves just 10 minutes to just see what's going on, Every night, 10 o'clock for 10 minutes just to keep it simple for ourselves. And most of the times the dialogue goes on for more than 10 minutes, uh, but we always end up praying together. And that in itself is super important for us to be connected. You know, and every bit of me wants to just lay down at bed, watch my YouTube highlights of the NBA basketball because it's, been, because it's been going on, decompressed in many different ways. But I know that 10 o'clock, that's the most important time for me. And then once a week, we go on a date together without the kids, of course, us together. That's our weekly rhythm because we know how easy it is to get busy This is perhaps the busiest season of our lives, but we still want to be committed to this. Listen, I'm not like, I'm not like trying to virtual signal, like everything's great for my life and my family. And I'm, you know, that's not the point here. The point is don't let immediate things take away from the important things. You got to keep the important things there in front. And ironically enough, when you keep important things first, the immediate things, they find their place. They truly do. Marriage is about constantly cleaving and yoking ourselves together, and it's about a lifelong commitment to do so. Look at what Jesus says in verse 8. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, there is no such thing as a no-fault divorce because divorce is not part of God's creational plan. It's not. And this view is radical. It's radical for us. And imagine how much more radical it is back then. And this is why the disciples, they get tripped up by this. So they privately ask Jesus, what are you talking about? Because they understood the cultural norms. Maybe even perhaps some of them were deciding maybe they should get divorced. Who knows? But Jesus' statement was enough to bother them, and they asked him. And as Jesus is asked this question by the disciples to clarify, what, you, what do you mean? Jesus doubles down on his statement. He says, if anyone remarries after divorce, they are committing adultery. Hard words. You ever watch this show called um, Love After Divorce? I know you've seen it because you talk about it. And I heard you talk about it. And I was thinking about it because it kind of bothered me, to be honest. You know, it kind of bothered me. You guys were talking about the favorite characters and your favorite actors and all that. And, you know, it, it bothered me. So, like, on my next date with Kathy, I was just kind of venting to her, telling her, oh, I can't believe people like this show. Love After Divorce. It's exactly, you know, you don't have to watch it. It kind of already tells itself by the title. I was telling Kathy, oh, this show is so dumb. It like, it. Uh, uh, sorry for my language, uh, but like, I, I hate this show because it glorifies divorce. Why are we glorifying divorce with this show? You know, and Kathy's just sitting there listening, nodding her head, concerned, empathetic and all that. And she t- finally tells me, oh, and then I said, I, I was like, you know, this is not love after divorce. This is adultery after divorce. Right? right, I'm steaming. And Kathy asked me, you know, have you, have you actually watched the show? I was like, no. Well, you should watch it. I was like, I'm not going to watch this show. Just tell me what it's about. She tells me, you know, it's about um, some people, they come from really abusive relationships. Some of them, they have spouses that were unfaithful. Some of them are just coming from really, really bad, broken marriages. And they're just learning how to find love after that, some hope. And after I heard that, I I was a little bit more sympathetic. And the thing is, I look at these words and I think, why can't Jesus be a little bit more sympathetic? Why does he seem so much more hardened than I am about this? And that's the thing. I I want every bit of me wants to soften the language, to nuance it a little bit, to place a little bit of exceptions to it, because perhaps you and I, we know someone in that situation. Maybe some of us come from those situations. Maybe we're in the process of that situation. And every bit of me wants to say, Jesus, can you say something else? Can you put it a little bit nicer? But it's not like that. It's not like that. I realize Jesus can say what he says because where you and I make conditions, we make exceptions to what we think is faithfulness, what that's supposed to look like, he's the only one who makes truly unconditional statements. Which brings me to my last point here. Because why do we all fight anyways to begin with? Every marriage we're fighting is normal. It's all about how you fight. And in our fights, there's conditions that we place in marriage, just like all relationships. What are the biggest fights that we have, especially when it comes to marriage conflict? You know, we can think about three things together there's money, there's intimacy, and then there's the delegation of household chores. Three top things that most couples fight about. But again, Esther Perel my beloved therapist here. She says there's always a fight underneath the fight. Three things she says. One is power and control. Whose priorities matter more? Two is trust and closeness. Do you have my back? Can I trust you? Will you be there for me? And three, last of all, respect and recognition. Do you value me? Do I matter to you? When I think about Esther Pearl's categories, how often have we failed to meet these conditions, for not only for our spouses, but also before God, the most important of all relationships? Do we not all possess a hardness of heart when it comes to the most important relationship of our lives? See, this hardness of heart also means uncircumcised hearts. And these are the very words described, that describe God's people back in Jeremiah 4.4 4, because they were committing spiritual adultery. They were turning away from God and running to the gods of the foreign nations. My kid, he randomly asked me this past week, Kathy and I as we were driving, he asked me, would you still love me even if I did a really, really bad thing? And all I could think about was, well, what are you thinking about? And Kathy was the one that was like affirming and said, Miles, you know, we will always love you no matter what, no matter what you do. We just hope that you understand that we love you enough that you would make decisions that uh, what are good, good things in your life and what are bad things in your life and that you would make wise decisions. I've concluded from this conversation that all sin Every single one of our sins. is really about us trying to fill voids. Voids that only God Himself could fill. That's what the Jeremiah 4.4 people don't understand. They're looking to the other gods to only uh for something that they, they can only find in God. You and I we're Jeremiah 4 4 people. We're Jeremiah 4 4 people. Struggling, turning to other gods to give them something that only God Himself can provide us. Guys, I'll be honest with you. I struggled writing this sermon. I did not want to preach today. Because on Friday, I had to officiate a wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. There was a lot of laughter, as dancing, as joyful, as celebratory. Beautiful wedding. But in the midst of this wedding, I found myself thinking about this passage. And I found myself thinking about people who are stuck in this passage, how who it might affect. And it's like, what do I say? So I couldn't be fully celebratory. In the middle of the wedding, the, the best man speeches were given, and there were like four of these speeches. And I realized this common theme that all the, the speeches were saying is how often the groom would pursue the bride and be like friend-zoned and rejected, but he kept going at it. He chopped after that tree. He was consistent. The thing is, I realized I don't have to soften any of this language of what Jesus says. We're all Jeremiah 4:4 people constantly turning to other options, divorcing ourselves from God, saying that we don't need God right now. I'm too busy. Just let me stay in my numbness. Yet God's response to our hardened hearts is to be softened towards us. That he truly can say to you, I still have a tender heart for you. While you may be able to break up with God, God promises, I will never break up with you. Because the broken body of Christ went through the ultimate divorce of receiving judgment for our sins, also that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I've realized on this side of eternity, all we're living out is a romantic tragedy. And by faith in Christ, Jesus promises something better than the romantic comedy. He promises to be with us to set a wedding, heavenly wedding table for us, just for you, because he's soft-hearted for you, he's tender-hearted towards you, and that's why you can be faithful. Can you pray with me? Abba, Father, I just think about Anne Lamont's words. That we are so ruined, so loved, and in control of so little. Some of us might come with hardened hearts. Others may be a little bit heavy. But no matter where you find us, Maybe just the fact that you can find us no matter where we're at. Lord, for those of us who are married, I pray for every single married person in this room to find the purpose of marriage in the gospel of Jesus that we have a faithful God towards us. Would that be the motivation? that makes us cleave, joined, and yoked together. Life is tough. I pray for everyone who is single, that you would still meet them in faithfulness, that you are a God who promises and means every single word of this, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Lord, as we learn how to be a church that reflects the bride of Christ, Work your miracles in us. Work your wonders. Work your mysteries. Remind us, most of all, how good you truly are to us. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Friends, we want to be able to respond